It's good to see you guys. Thank you all for joining us. Um, I just want to talk a little bit about a few things. The, the title of this morning's sermon is What's in the Name? And the reason why we decided to pick this, this title, What's in the Name, is because this is the very first time that we hear the name Christians in the Bible. Acts chapter 11, we hear for the first time the term Christians as it is spoken in this very massive, sprawling city called Antioch. And so I want to I ask the question, what's in a name? What's in the name Christian? But in order to really do that, I have to ask what prompted them to ask the question? What prompted them, to, or not what prompted them to ask the question, but rather what prompted them to call these people Christian? What was going on? What were the circumstances that led them to say, those are people who are following Jesus. Those are people who are of Jesus. And the answer to that question is quite simple. It was revival. It's what we call a, revival is what you call a, a, a massive and powerful move of God that ends up impacting multiple people at one time. That ends up transforming and changing the lives of multiple people at one time. And it may be for a sustained period, revival could go on for years. It may be for a couple of weeks where there's a massive uh, number of people that come to the Lord. But this is what happened in Antioch, in this text, is that there were a number of people that came to the Lord, and that led people to see what was going on and say, oh, that's the people that follow Jesus. That's the Christians. And so the question I want to start with, with this morning, besides what's in the name, is what does it take to see revival truly break out? What does it take to see a bona fide move of God actually happen in our midst? What's the DNA for true revival? It's a good question, I think, because number one, I think we are in desperate need of a true move of God. When you look around your city, you look around your nation, you look around your world, we need God more than ever. But not only is it, not only is it a good question because we're in desperate need of it, but it's a good question because it's something that we simply can't manufacture. It's something that we really have to begin to understand how God works in order to see it happen. And so true revival, I think, has a few simple ingredients that, that, that we can find in this text that we read together, that Matt read to us. And so I want to look at those ingredients. The first ingredient is that true revival takes spirit-empowered spirit evangelism. The second ingredient is, ingredient is that true revival takes spirit-filled discipleship. And then, and then the last ingredient is that true revival takes spirit-indwelled love. Spirit-empowered evangelism, spirit-filled discipleship, and spirit-indwelled love. Starting with the spirit-empowered evangelism, as you read through this passage this morning with Matt, where would you say this move of God started? For you. As you read through the passage, where, were you, where would you place the starting point for this actual move of God? Was it when the men arrived in Antioch or was it, was it when the men started preaching in Antioch? Not quite, neither. Luke, the author of the book of Acts and the author of the book of Luke, he actually gives, or the gospel of Luke, he actually gives us the answer as shown to him by the Holy Spirit in verse 19. Look at verse 19. He says, now those who were scattered 
because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. This move of God wasn't started in Antioch. It was started in Jerusalem. And it wasn't started in, in a moment of triumph. It was actually started in a moment of suffering. Stephen's death is what started this move of God. Now, Stephen was a man who, who preached a bold sermon in the book of Acts, or in, in the book of Acts chapter 7. And he preached this bold sermon to his, to his ethnic brothers, and they didn't take too kindly to that sermon. And so they took Stephen out to the uh, they took Stephen out to the streets and they they stoned him to his death. And after they stoned him to his death, there was a man that they all brought their cl uh, clothing and, and and sought his approval. And that man that they sought approval from for this stoning was a man by the name of Saul. And in chapter eight, verse one through three, it says this about Saul. Acts chapter eight. Verse 1 through 3, it says, And Saul approved of this execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation or weeping and crying over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. Saul was ravaging the church. In entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, if you're saying that sounds extremely painful, you would be right. It is extremely painful because at times God will allow painful experiences in our lives to accomplish divine purpose. But if you're saying that it sounds completely purposeless, you would be wrong. Again, when, when oftentimes he, he, he will allow what he allows, he is doing so accomplishing a number of things that we are unaware of. God moves with purpose in our pain. Nowhere is that clearer than through the salvation and the eternal life that we've all been given through the suffering of his very own son, Jesus Christ. His death carried divine purpose and his death brought life to all those who put their trust in him for salvation. And God is no different. In the book of Acts, chapter 8, chapter 11, in fact, the persecution that we see, God is using to push Christians outward. They wanted to stay in Jerusalem because Jerusalem was home. Jerusalem was where comfort was. But God was using persecution to push them outward into all the other places he had called them to be. In fact, Jesus tells us as much in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. He says this about this, this, this move. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he has said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses, but you're not just going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. You're going to be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria into the uttermost parts of the earth, into the end of the earth. And how do you think that was accomplished? In this moment of persecution, they are pushed out of Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. 
Some of the greatest revivals in the history of the church were birthed through suffering and or persecution. China was a nation, China is a nation, that actually outlawed its missionaries, missionaries that would try to come into China and share the gospel. They outlawed them in the early 50s. They cast them out of the country. China is a nation that is still um, heavily, heavily persecute, uh, per, or heavily persecutes Christians. China was a nation that in the 1980s only had 2 million Christians total in the early 1980s and has been persecuting Christians fiercely all along that time up till now. And yet, today, China stands at 97 million Christians, even in the face of persecution. See, God is always working divine purpose in human pain. And so one of the reasons we get the revival in Antioch is because God is using the pain that the enemy seeks for evil. He's using it to push the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem into his purposes. Saints of God, don't think it's strange if the same thing happens to you individually in your own life. If there are moments of pain that God uses to push you into divine purposes. Don't think it's strange if it happens to us as a group, maybe in this church or maybe in this city or maybe even in this country. Don't think it's strange if persecution comes to Christianity. Don't, don't, don't run like Chicken Little crying the sky is falling and God has lost control because he has not. It could be the very thing that God uses to spring forth revival in America, revival in our city, revival in our home. See, the saints arrive in Antioch having been pushed out, and when they arrive, they bring the gospel with them. But verse 19 uncovers another hurdle that they encounter. They are only sharing this gospel with Jewish believers that they are culturally connected to. See, cultural bias disconnects, or rather hinders us in the spread of the gospel. Cultural bias hinders us in the spread of the gospel. Verse 20, it says, There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. So the first group that comes, they're only speaking to the Jewish cultured believers. But the second group that comes, this group is coming in emboldened to speak to whomever. One translation gives us Hellenists, that being Greek-speaking Jews, but actually that translation may be rendered Greek-speaking non-Jews. It may be actually speaking to basically the people who, aren't, who are outside of the Jewish culture. And so one group comes in, they're just speaking to their people. But then you got another group of people that come from the Mediterranean island of, uh, of Cy uh, Cyprus, and you got another group that's coming in from the coastal, the north, the north coast of Africa called Cyrene in Libya. And those, group, those groups meet in Antioch and they immediately begin to go to everybody else sharing the gospel. See, our evangelism must not only be spirit-led, but our evangelism must be spirit-emboldened if we are to make impact and see revival. They came with a defined strategy and intention to take the gospel message to the others. 
the outsiders. While many, even after they were pushed out into these lands, were content playing it safe by finding some of their own people to take the gospel to and share Jesus with, these folks from the islands and from Africa were courageous enough to move towards the outsiders and engage them with the gospel because they believed that the gospel was powerful enough to transcend culture. One commentary notes that this, these, these, these men, these men of Cyrene, these men of Cyprus, that they should be called mavericks. They were dare takers. Another, one, another um, a theologian uh, cites these men as having daring spirits. See, the advancement of God's kingdom was more important than the protection and the pride of their cultural identities and the comfort of their cultural norms. And tradition. See, some of us can't go to others because we're concerned about whether or not they're going to change culture if we go. We're concerned about sacrificing our culture if we don't. If we go, well, I would share Jesus with them, but but then they're going to want to change my music, and I like my music, and so I'll share people. I'll share Jesus with people who like my music. I'll share Jesus with people who like my hobbies. I'll share Jesus with people that I quote-unquote, connect to. These men weren't concerned about that. Church, in order to see true revival and renewal in our city and in our world, we must long for God's glory and gospel to advance to all people in our city and world, not just those who fit our cultural profiles. You are here because you believe that in your heart. What we have to pray for is our daily actions and attitudes to begin to line up with that belief, right? Our witness should be on visible display with every people group God places in our path. Our readiness to share the hope we have should be seen no matter what culture, ethnicity, the person is standing in front of us. This is not an appeal to rid yourselves of your cultural uh, traditions and your cultural profile. It is, however, a call to never let those traditions obstruct the advancement of God's kingdom and the opportunity to unite Christ's church. Revival requires that we do not allow that to happen. We must push through the cultural norms into unfamiliar territory for the sake of the gospel. But notice the divide wasn't merely race or ethnicity. It was actually culture. The gap in religious culture between the one who was Jewish and received Christ versus the one who was inundated in Greek culture and received Christ was super wide. It was a big gap between those two. They didn't, they didn't allow that divide, however, to obstruct their commitment to take the gospel to those people. In fact, they take a special approach to the gospel and they share the Lord Jesus instead of highlighting the Messiah Jesus. They, they are preaching, it says in verse 19, verse 20, the Lord Jesus. You say, what's the, what's the significance of that? Well, any Gentile that was raised without Jewish background wouldn't care about Jesus the Messiah. They don't understand anything about Jewish tradition and Jewish history and how they've been waiting on a Messiah. But Jesus, the one who has come to save the earth, the one that we call Lord, the one that we call Master, maybe that does pique their interest. So instead, these brothers are focusing their evangelistic efforts, showing them why Christ is Lord of all, and not simply the Messiah of the Jewish people. 
Can your gospel address the core concerns of the cultures around you? See, people often ask, how could African slaves adopt the religion of their slave masters? And there are a lot of answers to that question, but one, one, in, one answer in particular is that they found in God a liberator. They found in God a redeemer. They found in God a savior. See, when they read the Bible, they saw that the very core things that they were concerned about, God had answers to. And you say, well, I don't know if he has answers to everyone's. Yes, he does. And it might be heavenly answers. It might be eternal answers. But your job as a, as a Christian who is evangelizing is to go into the culture and say, listen, I got the answer to your deepest concerns. I got the answer to your deepest struggles. I got the answer to your deepest trials. And it's in Jesus Christ. When they looked to Jesus, they saw a God who had not looked over them, but who had instead walked with them. When they looked to Jesus, they didn't find a Christ who took the form of oppressor, oppressive master to save, but they found one who took the form of suffering servant to save. And so even though they were literally under the chains and shackles of one group over this same religion, they still embraced it because they found in that religion the Savior who spoke directly to them. And let me tell you something. The way the, the, way the gospel is built, the Savior is a Savior of the world. And so he speaks to all people groups. God, as he does with all cultures, had an answer for their greatest cultural concern. Oftentimes, a good bit of our evangelism leaves people on the fringes. We keep people on the outside because they don't fit our profile. But revival will require us to possess the type of courage to move past our cultural profile. Look at verse 21, and we see another quality of revival. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The hand of the Lord was with them. The hand of the Lord is a term of power. When we read it, that it was with them or upon them, it is a reflection of God's unearned favor and power being with them. When we read that it was against them, it is a reflection of God's judgment. We see where the Bible says at times the hand of the Lord was against them, and that means God's judgment was against them. But here it's God's unearned, undeserved favor was on them. I say the hand of the Lord is unearned because we can't control God. God doesn't owe us. He doesn't move just based on your prompting. Whenever you want him to move, he doesn't have to show his power on our demand. But we can position ourselves in such a way that we are making way for his power to be made known. That we can position ourselves through obedience to God. And that's what they did. They positioned themselves by boldly sharing the gospel with all people. They positioned themselves by being led by the Spirit to Antioch. And in their leading and in their obedience, God's hand was upon them. And what happens? God's hand was upon them, and many people turned to him. 
See, our evangelism is only as powerful as the prominence of God's hand that's upon us. We can have great strategies. You can have great ideas about how to share Jesus with people. You can have great passion and great conviction about sharing Jesus with people. You can be liked. You can be relatable. But if you don't have God's hand upon you, then no one will flee darkness. They flee darkness because God's power touches them. Now, we all know this. We know it takes God to transform a heart. But let me ask you a question. How does your actual activity line up with that knowledge? In other words, when we talk about sharing the gospel, are you kind of, you know, are you thinking of all the different ways that you're not doing this right? And are you thinking of all the different ways you need to do this differently and spending no time in prayer? Because that gives the indication that you think salvation is in your hand and not God's. See, if you genuinely believe that salvation is in God's hand, then, yeah, you will strategize, and, yeah, you will think about how you should share it better, and, yeah, you will pray for knowledge, and you will, you, will, you will certainly seek knowledge in Scripture so that you can answer questions that people may have. But you know what else you'll do? You'll pray like crazy that God would move because you believe it's not me that's going to cause the movement. It's him. Does that make sense? And so how is my activity lining up with this knowledge that it's in God's hands. Salvation is in God's hands. Now, with that being said, it doesn't dismiss man's activity. It informs it. And it shapes it. Man still has to make the trip. Man still has to step out in boldness. Man still has to preach. We still have to share. We still have to invite people to church with us. We still have to ask the questions about do you know Jesus? But with all of that, we also have to pray. Are you tracking? And seek the face and the heart of God and ask God to move in our homes, on our jobs, in our schools, in our city, in our nation, and ultimately in our world. This is what revival requires. Verse 22 through 23, it says, The spirit of, the, I'm sorry, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the spirit and full of faith. Revival requires spirit-filled discipleship. See, as people are one to Jesus Christ, we must be ready to equip them to walk with Jesus Christ. We must be ready to teach them what it means to be a Christian. Thus, re revival requires a deep commitment from the church to not just simply preach the gospel, but disciple people in the gospel. When Jerusalem heard about what was happening in Antioch, did you see what they did? They sent somebody to go and disciple, didn't they? They sent Barnabas to Antioch. And they didn't just send anybody, right? They sent somebody, they said, that was 
full of the Spirit. They sent somebody that they say was a good man. They sent somebody that they say was full of faith. There's two points here worth noting. One, the sign of Christian maturity is not merely biblical knowledge. Barnabas was a good man. Barnabas was full of the faith. Barnabas was full of the spirit. All of this was required of him in order to be sent to be a disciple. You know what they don't talk about? His biblical knowledge. Even though we're sure that he had plenty of it. But what rises to the surface when they think about who should we send? Someone that was full of the spirit, full of faith, and a good man. I've seen time and time again people who are capable of passing seminary exams and Bible quizzes and yet couldn't teach a new Christian how to love their spouse. See, when we esteem knowledge and positions of privilege and other traits as a model of Christian discipleship, we undermine true discipleship. See, all those may serve a purpose at some point in time, but none of them should serve a purpose above the, above the qualities of being a good man, full of faith, or a good woman, full of faith, and full of the Spirit. This man is operating freely in the fruit of the Spirit, in other words. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And they say that's the kind of person that we need to send and disciple others and train others and equip others. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1 that the goal of our knowledge, the goal of the instruction that he gives is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. He says that's the goal of knowledge. And so if the, if the goal of biblical knowledge given to us is solid people growing in faith, growing in love, and full of the Spirit, if that's the goal, then if knowledge doesn't lead to that, then knowledge is wasted. Are you tracking with that? In other words, if you just know a lot, but it doesn't, love you to, it doesn't lead you to love deeper, doesn't lead you to peace, doesn't lead you to kindness, doesn't lead you to deeper faithfulness, then the knowledge is wasted. Be full of biblical knowledge. Be full of doctrine. I want you to read. I want you to study. But, but be full of the spirit that causes us to live that knowledge out in genuine ways, in bona fide ways. The other thing about this discipleship is that the goal of Christian maturity we see is disciple-making. Barnabas was equipped by God to be sent out by God. Christian, your growth in God is never simply about you. Its end is disciple-making. You don't come here to get filled up just so you can be a fantastic Christian and hide all of that and keep all of that to yourself. You grow in the church, in order, that, so that you, in order to be a person that's reaching people outside of it, and in order to be a person that's here encouraging people that are inside of it, and equipping people that are inside of it, that's the end and the purpose of your growth. And so Barnabas is not just full of the Spirit, full of faith, and a good man for himself. Barnabas is full of the Spirit, full of faith, and a good man so that he can be sent out to encourage the saints that have been evangelized to and that have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord. But then look at verse 24 and 20, uh, through 26. It says, A great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. You hear that? Did you hear that? Anybody? anybody everybody hear that? I need you to hear who Barnabas went to go get. 
Verse 25 again, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. Now Saul is mentioned twice in this story. I mentioned him earlier. And when I mentioned him the first time, what was he doing? You remember? He's persecuting people. People were taking their clothes. People that had stoned Stephen in the street were taking their clothes and laying them at Saul's feet and saying, look at how fantastic of a job we did. And Saul was nodding approvingly, like, yeah, good job, good job. And Saul was going through people's houses, ravaging homes and snatching Christians out of homes, throwing them in jail. However, now the second time we read about Saul in this story, Barnabas is seeking him out to bring him back to Antioch to help disciple the saints of God that have been produced in part because of the scattering created by Saul. The scattering that Saul created, now he is being used by God to disciple the people that were created in that scattering. Think about the grace of God at work in that. Think about the wonder of God at work in that. To take the same man whose hatred and persecution led to people all around the world, all around Jerusalem being pushed out of Jerusalem. Transform that man into a son, adopted son of God, a follower of Jesus Christ. And now send that same man to Antioch to be a discipler of the people who were won by the people that got pushed out by him. That's the profound nature of God's work in our lives and in Paul's life. And it's, it's not lost on him because in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, he says this. He says, I give thanks to Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man, but I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. He goes on and he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them, but I receive mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience. Paul understands it. He's like, I got no business being here, right? I got no business being Fetch from Tarsus to go to Antioch to disciple anybody? I was out here trying to kill y'all. I was out here trying to throw y'all in prison. And now God is using me to help equip his people. I got no business being here, but God's mercy is so rich. See, let us never utter what God cannot do. If he can allow a man to persecute his church in order to see his church spread and then transform that man and send that man right to the very place that his church ended up in in order to disciple his church, then he can certainly use you in whatever mess you got going on. 
He can absolutely use you in whatever struggles that you find yourself battling with. Some of you think you are no longer usable because of what you've done. But it's because you don't know the mercies of God. It runs far deeper than you understand. And let us never be people that, that, that say God can't use us because what we've done before coming to him. But let us never be people that say God can't use that person because what they've done before coming to him. What, what I find most interesting is not simply that Saul is, is, is going, but that somebody is sending for him. If Saul was in our church, they'd be like, man, no, you can't get Saul. You got to go get somebody else, right? <laughs> Bring somebody else to talk to us. You can't get Saul. He can't come. But they understand the mercy of God as well. One final note about discipleship. Look at verse 26. It says, for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. One thing that should be clear to someone who has, who has looked at the New Testament for any amount of time is that, is that it is more than preaching. Preaching may be a significant piece of it, but ultimately life on life, discipleship, teaching and equipping and training should occupy more space in the life of the Christian in discipling others than preaching does. Saul and Barnabas literally spent an entire year with these people pouring their lives into them in order to help them understand what it means to be a Christian. Teaching them what it means to walk faithfully with God. It's one of the reasons why we seek to have missional communities and out of those missional communities, we seek to have DNAs and out of those DNAs, we want people meeting with each other. We want sisters growing with sisters, brothers growing with brothers. Why? Because discipleship is more than just a Sunday morning sermon. It's life on life being lived with each other. It's holding one another accountable and saying, these are the areas that I'm struggling in. Can you pray with me? And can you challenge me when you see me slipping off? See, if we, the disciples, we can't necessarily be disappointed when the disciples of God around us aren't maturing if we, the disciples who have been called to teach and train and equip them, aren't pouring our lives into them. If we aren't pouring our lives into them, why should we expect them to grow? Very few of you can ever say that you grew to maturity in the faith without the help of someone else. Maybe it was the parents that raised you to know Jesus and follow Jesus. Maybe it was a good friend that you had in your life that walked with Jesus and walked with you. Maybe it was someone in your church or maybe someone in this church. But very few of us can say, you know what? I grew to maturity in Jesus Christ with the help of nobody. It doesn't exist. We need each other in order to grow into full maturity in Christ. Disciples are best made amongst those who are sharing their lives with each other. So we need spirit-empowered evangelism. We need a bona fide move of God for revival. I'm sorry, we need spirit-empowered evangelism for a bona fide move of God. We need spirit-filled discipleship for a bona fide move of God. And lastly, real quickly, we need spirit-indwelled love. It says in the last, last verses, beginning in verse 26, in, in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. 
Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now I want to come back to verse 26, where they first called them Christians. I want to spend a little time in the other verses. First, notice the transformation that happens where immediately these people who don't know these people in Jerusalem from Adam now feel immediate solidarity with them as they are in need and they seek to provide provision for the church in Jerusalem. See, one of the signs that God has truly awakened their hearts is that love has come with it. Now they love the people in church like their own family. You know why? Because they have become their own family, bought and purchased through the blood of Jesus Christ. See, if we are sharing the gospel with the Spirit's power and discipling those one to Christ with the Spirit's, with the Spirit's filling, then the fruit of that should be a love for the other saints. No matter where the other saints are, there should be genuine Genuine bonding that happens that leads to sacrificial, compassionate love for the saints around you. The Bible talks about weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice, bearing the burdens of one another. All of that should come as a product of being evangelized and discipled. The Spirit brings with that a deep love and affection for one another. But notice who's helping. Notice God's providential wisdom also in the fact of who's helping. The very people that the Jewish people, the ones that were pushed out of Jerusalem, when they got to Antioch, they were only ministering to the Jewish people, right? Keeping that Gentiles on the outside, keeping the Greek-speaking Jews on the outside, the Greek-cultured Jews on the outside, speaking just to the Jewish people. And now look at what God is doing. Those very people that were pushed to the outside because they had faithful men come behind and share the gospel with them, got saved, got discipled, and now look who they're helping. The people in Jerusalem. They're receiving help from the people that initially rejected them and kept them at bay. Or they're giving help, rather, to those people. See, when we allow cultural barriers to obstruct the mission of God, we not only jeopardize those who we refuse to reach, we jeopardize the blessing that the union brings for us. Are you tracking with that? There's people that you're refusing to reach that God can use to bless you. That God can use to strengthen you. That God can use to encourage you when you find yourself in most need of it. You see that love that pushes past those earlier slights. You see that love that's pushing past the fact that they were rejected earlier. That's how you know that love has been born of the Spirit. Because they could have held on. They could have been bitter, right? Oh, man, those people wouldn't even talk to us. They thought they were too good for us. We got nothing for them. We got no money for them. 
but they're still reaching out because they see them as family. That's what spirit-indwelled, spirit-empowered love does. And what shall we say about the name Christians? Well, first of all, we can say that it was actually a negative. That they first used it as a pejorative, to poke fun at them. It wasn't used as something to be celebrated. That they were like, look at those crazy Jesus people over there. That's, that, that's kind of what they were saying. But they took it as a, we took it obviously as a badge of honor. Yeah, crazy enough to follow the Lord of the universe. And so we embraced it. And we embraced what it was supposed to be. It was supposed to represent this idea that we do, in fact, follow Jesus. But then as you think about it now, what does it mean now? It has all sorts of meanings. It's gotten wrapped up in politics. It's gotten, it's gotten twisted in so many different ways that you don't even know what Christian is anymore. But see, one thing I know is that revival will restore the dignity of the name. And so I'm not just simply praying for people to understand what Christian means again. I'm praying for revival to come. If revival comes, then people will know what Christian is again. People will see it clearly. If revival moves throughout this church, and people will say, oh yeah, that, those are the people that are following Jesus. If revival moves in this city, then, the, then, the, then those on the, that, are, that are in this city that don't know Jesus, they'll say, oh, okay, so that's what Christian means. Oh, so it's not the politics. Oh, oh that's what it is. And so that's what I'm that's the end I'm praying to. The revival would come. But saints, fam, in order for revival to come to the corporate world, to the corporate body rather, and to the city, and to the nation, and to the world, it has to start in you. Revival has to come in here. Revival has to be in your own heart. And so as you're praying for revival to come, may you not miss the prayer, Lord, revive me. Revive my heart. Give me passion for your mission again. Give me a heart to obey you, even when obedience requires that I go against my desire. Give me a passion to obey you, even when obeying you means that I risk something. Even if obeying you means that I lose something. Revive in me a desire to know you deeply, more deeply and more intimately. Reviving me a desire to warn and go and share your gospel with those who don't know you. Reviving me a desire to go and disciple those who do know you. Reviving me a desire to love deeper than I've ever loved before. And Lord, as you're reviving me, go and revive others around me in order that revival may come. Let's pray.